0: Yes, thank you very much. One of the reasons I'm here this afternoon, uh, which I should say is semi-surprising in the sense that I'm not from ailleurs, I'm from here, I'm from this department and this institution, and typically in this slot we invite people from outside the department um, to interact with us and and regale us with their wisdom. Um, And the reason I'm here today is because I think it was after the research day that we had in October, we talked about ways in which we could learn more about the work that we do in the department across themes. So, as many of you will know, our research activity is is sort of organized across these three different themes. And we have events such as the one this afternoon, which is a sort of a theme half day and events where we all come together. Typically, it tends to be rather theme-oriented or theme-internal, and we tend not to have departmental-wide seminars like this. And I made the suggestion that once a term, we might want to um, have a slot for people in the department to give such a seminar so that we could learn more about each other's work. And since I put my head above the parapet, I am the first person to be here, but I am hoping that we can recruit other colleagues in other terms. I was also thinking this afternoon that um, the first and last time that I gave a seminar in this slot, that is to say Monday, 5 p.m., in this department was my inaugural seminar, which was 10 years ago. Um, And I guess that expression that time flies when you're having fun must really be true because it doesn't feel like 10 years at all that I was last here. So um, yeah, it's a long time. So what I'm going to do then in my 45 minutes (laughs) is to uh, just try and talk about some of the research that's going on in our research group, the REAL research group. REAL stands for research into English as an additional language. I should apologize to some of you who were here at the research day in October. I am going to use some slides that I used then, uh, but the general content of the presentation will be different. So, but the first thing I want to do is uh, define my constructs so, I want to first explain who EAL children are and why I think they're of interest and relevance to us as researchers in applied linguistics. So, EAL children is the term we use in England, which stands for English as an additional language, to refer to children who are minority language learners. That are, those are children who are, they have a home language that isn't English, but they are living in England, or the UK, where the majority language is English, and so, importantly, their education is all carried out through the medium of English. So, typically, these are children from first- or second-generation uh, immigrant families. Um, now, for many of these children, not all, and I'm going to repeat myself, in that the group of EAL, uh, the population of EAL children in the UK is very heterogeneic, Heterogeneous, hetero—I can't even say that now. Varied, (laughs) and um, the uh, so so the characteristics are not similar across um, across within this population, both within the UK and, of course, internationally as well. Um, But it is the case that for many of these children the first point of significant exposure to English actually happens when they start interacting with formal education either through early childhood education or through primary provision and this is because uh, England and the UK more widely is highly linguistically diverse and we have many different uh, areas within the UK uh, where uh, specific languages are spoken uh, widely within communities and so it really is possible for children to show up to school when they're four turning five with relatively little exposure to English and of course this, this can, can create all sorts of um, consequences for their uh, academic development. Uh, So, why are they interesting? Well, they're interesting because they're a second language learner population, and as Harry said, my research interests lie within the scope of understanding better second language learning in children. So, they're that they've ticked that box so they're of interest to me generally and I'm particularly interested in aspects of vocabulary which you'll see in a minute and their vocabulary development is also particularly important because it relates to reading comprehension which is of course important for their academic achievement they also represent a population who can become really fluent in two different languages so Another strand of research that I engage in is with children who are learning uh, a foreign language at school. And while it's certainly possible that they can learn aspects of those foreign languages that they are taught, typically they don't become perfectly fluent or even remotely fluent in uh, both the second foreign language they're taught through school and their home language. But this is a population that has that potential at the, sort of at the beginning. All the ingredients are in place, if you like, at the beginning of their lives for them to then go on and become what we would consider to be competent bilinguals, to have a strong competence in more than one language. If that's the case, then they could also potentially benefit from the advantages that we are aware of in being bilingual. And there are many advantages. Obviously, there are the the, um, ones that relate to being able to engage with one's community, uh, one's heritage. There are socio-political, economic advantages in terms of uh, uh, being able to get different types of jobs and employment and things, opportunities like that. There are also potential cognitive advantages to being bilingual. Some of these are in dispute at the moment, um, but others less so. So we know, for example, that bilinguals typically have higher metalinguistic skills than monolingual children. And metalinguistic awareness is a a feature that uh, is, is typically a strong predictor of literacy skills, so that's an advantage. There's also some interesting work showing that bilinguals tend to have more advanced theory of mind than monolinguals. And then there's a whole debate in the literature right now about the extent to which bilinguals have advantages in certain aspects of executive function, where some research is clearly arguing that they do, other research is suggesting that this is actually difficult to replicate. So we'll need to stay tuned for a definitive um, aspect to that but generally we can expect advantages to being bilingual and one might expect then that children who are bilingual or emergent bilingual should be at the top end of any kind of achievement scale but this isn't what we see when we look at the uh, international picture so this slide um, is from the PISA 2003 studies where we're looking at achievement on the mathematics scale on the y-axis and different countries on the x-axis. And the bottom figure here is first generation students. The middle one is second and the top one is native. And again, you'll see lots of variety across countries. Um, But also, the the main thing I want to show you is that in general, these bars here tend to be lower than these, which in in turn tend to be lower than these. That is to say that being from an immigrant family, Overall, and this is a generalization, tends to, lower your, uh, tends to be associated with lower performance on the mathematics scale. And this figure, again from PISA 2003, represents exactly the same basic information except performance on the reading scale. So it isn't the case overall that we see a pattern for children from immigrant families doing as well as or outperforming native speakers. This figure, which also is quite messy, is from the PISA 2009 data. So that's three years after the data that I just showed you. Uh, It's a different uh, way of presenting the same information. That is to say, we have uh, countries, again, on the x-axis, with the OECD average here in the middle. Uh, This, again, is performance on the reading scale. Uh, and the little, these little shapes, the diamond shapes, are students without an immigrant background, that is, native speakers of the majority language of the country. The little circle is second generation and the triangle is first generation. Again, what you see is a lot of variability across the different participating countries in this PISA um, study. You see countries, for example, like Canada, where the three groups are very, very similar. So Canada may either be doing something well or maybe it's a characteristic of the particular children that they have in, in Canada. And I think, quite interestingly, Finland, which uh, is often applauded as being the model for how we should be educating our children, there tends to be uh, quite large gaps between... Uh, native speakers, second, and then first generation. So, again, the point of showing you this is that three years after the initial data, uh, in 2003 and 2009, the picture is very similar. I'm sorry, I don't have the most recent one. So, on average, the difference between first generation and non-immigrant children exceeds as much as one school year's progress. Now, obviously, there's a whole set of other factors that are implicated in this pattern, one of which, a very obvious one, is SES. And when you factor SES out of this, the gap between children from immigrant families and native speakers does narrow considerably, but there is still a gap overall. So that suggests there is something about being from these uh, uh, immigrant families that is affecting their performance on these uh, different academic outcomes. So that's just a sort of a general picture internationally to illustrate that children from immigrant families, minority language learners, tend not to be at the top end, but actually they tend, but not always, but they tend to be underperforming relative to native speaking children. I'd like to take the next few minutes to look a little bit more closely at um, what happens in the UK. And The significant majority, that is to say 99.999% of my research is within the primary context, so I'm going to just show you what happens in the primary context when we compare generally native versus EAL children. The the bottom line is is this, which is that again, while there's a lot of variability, the, the pattern is exactly as I was showing you internationally, that children from immigrant families EAL children tend to underperform relative to native speakers. This first figure here is the proportion of children achieving what's considered to be a good level of development on the early years foundation stage profile. So this is a teacher assessment that's given to children who are in the very first year of formal primary education when they're four years old turning five. And what we want is for them to achieve a good level of development. Uh, and what you can see across year group here on the x-axis is that consistently native speaking there are more native speaking children descriptively who are achieving that good level than eal children so that's the first point at which we evaluate children in primary school the next point is at the end of key stage one at the end of year two And effectively the pattern is the same, the proportion of children achieving level 2, the national average on the Key Stage 1 SATs, is a little bit higher for the native speakers than it is for the EAL children. And this again is a consistent pattern across this five-year window. And I've chosen this five-year window because these are the stats available on the NALDIC website (laughs) and they have not yet been updated beyond 2012. And this is what happens at the end of primary school, the proportion of children achieving the national standard of level 4 or above at Key Stage 2. Again, we see exactly the same pattern. Native-speaking children are are performing at a... uh, There are higher proportions, I should say, of native-speaking children achieving this level than there are uh, EAL children. Just to look ahead, I don't do research in this context, but this is what the GCSEs look like. Uh, this is f- um, the number of the proportion of children who are achieving five or more uh, GCSEs at A star to C grade. Uh, and this is it's all of the different GCSE subjects all sort of modeled up together, um, including English and mathematics. And again, the pattern is very similar, higher proportions of native speaker relative to EAL. However, um, very recently, there was an item in the media, and this is, this is a headline that I've copied off the Telegraph that was published on Monday. Uh, I think I have that date wrong. But anyway, um, the point is that children who are um, taking the English baccalaureate uh, for the first time, um, we've seen that EAL children are actually doing better than native-speaking children on the English back. So it's not all grim for EAL children Uh, but what I think this does show us is there is a consistent pattern it's consistent both internationally and it's consistent within the UK at all the different stages of assessment that um, we're looking at. This figure again is taken from the NALDIC website I should have explained that NALDIC stands for National Association for Language Development in the Curriculum which is an excellent website for a resource for people who work with EAL children and there's lots of different um, publications and stats and information there so if you're interested do have a look because it's an excellent resource. But what this figure shows us we have year on the x-axis and we have um, with the sort of pale blue bars proportion of um, primary school children and the Darker bars are secondary school children. Again, the point of this figure is to just show you that the numbers of children with EAL in primary school and indeed secondary school seems to be rising. And as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of different languages in the UK. It's a very linguistically diverse country. Over 360 different first languages are represented in the home languages of children with EAL which is presumably one of the reasons why we don't have any kind of formal bilingual education in this country because it would be exceedingly difficult to identify what that other language should be that we want our kids to learn. Provision of EAL for children with EAL, there is none beyond English. It's, uh, it is, um, there is no statutory right to be educated in any other language. EAL children are not mainstream, they're not withdrawn for any significant period of time to help them with their English. If they are withdrawn or if they do receive remedial support with English, it it, it typically happens outside of class. The point is it's not integrated at all with the curriculum that they are trying to deal with. Now, uh, schools are encouraged to draw from the first language of the pupils where that's possible, and indeed it is possible in some communities, but as I've just said, there's a great deal of diversity with respect to the first languages of EAL children, and so this becomes extremely challenging. You, you either have to be a polyglot and as a teacher, or you have to find some other way of, of drawing upon the first languages. Funding uh, is allocated to schools, uh, again, on the basis of proportion of EAL children in the school, uh, but the funding has been slashed very dramatically recently. We used to um, work with colleagues in EMAS, which stands for Ethnic Minority Achievement Service. Uh, it's, I think it's been completely wiped out in Oxford. Uh, our colleagues there have sort of disappeared Um, uh, so funding is a very significant problem I should also say training is a very significant problem as well that is to say it used to be possible with initial teacher education to train and specialize in EAL pedagogy it is no longer possible to do that and hasn't been for some time which is a bit odd given how many EAL children we have in the country that we no longer have that option EAL coordinators are often available Uh, and indeed are appointed but again typically they haven't received very much training. They sometimes get appointed as EAL coordinator because they uh, are the French teacher or the MFL teacher which is maybe more related than being the physics teacher but is really has nothing much to do with how to educate minority language learners. If there are no EAL coordinators in the school then it's the job of the special educational needs coordinator. Again this is a problem because again the SENCO is probably not well trained to support EAL children, the youth specific challenges that EAL children face. And it also of course sends a rather pejorative message to these children that they're problem of being bilingual is um, akin to dyslexia or learning difficulties or social emotional problems or indeed any of the other reasons why a child would end up seeing the SENCO. So research in the on EAL children in the UK. As I've already established we have growing numbers of EAL children in primary schools and there is a concern that for many but not all to point that out but not all but many of these children they may not be um, achieving their full academic potential but when you actually start looking at the number of studies that have been carried out within the UK context on English language and literacy development of EAL children you quickly see that it's a very very small number there is actually a lot of research on EAL generally in the UK but it tends not to be focused on the learning of English specifically and tracking the developmental trajectory of English learning, nor is there particularly, uh, is there very much work that's looking specifically at the relation of English learning to um, their literacy development, which is clearly very important if they're going to be accessing the curriculum. I used to joke that you could read it all in an afternoon. I think it will take a bit longer than an afternoon now, but you probably could read it all in a day. So what do we know? Well, we know um, that there is a huge amount of variability within the EAL population with respect to their English language development. So even in a local authority, this is from a borough in London, this Demi 2013 study, that is applauded regularly for how successful How successfully they support children with EAL. It takes on average six years to become fluent in English. Um, So of course if six years is the mean then of course that means some children are doing it uh, catching up to their native-speaking peers much earlier but of course it also means that some children are taking even longer than that. We know from the work that um, Demi and our colleague Steve Strand has been doing that again there's a great deal of variability in terms of EAL children's achievement which again is also related to their English fluency. We know from the work of people like Jim Cummins that there are different types of fluency that we should be considering and that it may not take that long for minority language learners to develop uh, basic interpersonal communication skills or so-called BICS, conversational fluency, but the academic language that all children need to develop may take considerably longer for EAL children than it does native speaking children. And um, the figure that's often reported is five to seven years. I went to a conference in Toronto a couple of years ago, and he gave a plenary, Jim Cummins gave a plenary there, and he was saying that he was working with a group of, of students who were in year 12, and they still were underperforming relative to native spheres on measures of academic proficiency, even though they'd been educated within the context of Toronto, where this research was being carried out for the entire... Time, but, um, uh, t- time period of their formal education. We also know from research of people like Hutchison et al that when we look specifically at reading comprehension, which is obviously critical for developing academic outcomes, uh, major- EAL children can lag as much as one year behind majority language peers. And this brings me to the role of vocabulary uh, and why um, I mean, I've mean, i always been interested in vocabulary. My PhD thesis was on vocabulary and morphosyntax. But vocabulary in the context of EAL, children, I think, is particularly relevant. Because we know from a lot of research that uh, vo- vocabulary knowledge is a very strong predictor of reading comprehension. And as I've said before, if you're accessing the curriculum, you've got to have good reading comprehension skills. We also know from quite a bit of research that EAL children tend to have smaller vocabularies, that is, uh, less vocabulary knowledge than native-speaking children. So, this could potentially be a problem, and indeed it is. The research that's been carried out thus far in the UK on these issues have shown that for both expressive vocabulary breadth and receptive vocabulary breadth, EAL children tend to underperform relative to native speakers. By expressive vocabulary, I'm not talking about descriptive, like how well you can describe something and your use of wonderful adjectives and so forth. I'm talking about your ability to produce the lexical item when required. And a typical way in which this is measured with, for example, standardized assessments is to show the child a picture of an object and then ask them to name it. And then there are subsequent items on a scale and then when the child is reaching a point where they are unable to continue, the the task ends. And the opposite is how we tend to measure receptive vocabulary. We show a a set of four pictures and we ask the child to point to the picture of whatever it is. We know from the research that's been done so far that the relationships between vocabulary, breadth and comprehension are stronger for EAL children than they are for native-speaking children and that the relationship between expressive or productive vocabulary, breadth and reading comprehension is particularly strong for EAL children. And this is something I'm going to repeat in a few minutes, that there's something about productive vocabulary that consistently... Uh, discriminates EAL children from native-speaking children. Uh, But what's in a word? And this is what I was talking about at the... um at the research day in October. So, the ways in which researchers have typically measured vocabulary knowledge in EAL children, not just in this country, but, indeed, internationally, is to use these sorts of standardized assessments that I was mentioning before, where you either show the child a picture and ask them to name it, or a set of pictures and ask to the point the one that you, as the researcher, name. There are many other components and aspects of vocabulary knowledge that are worth looking at, and here are a few. Um, So, understanding the definition of the word, understanding its synonyms, its use in multiple contexts, different word associates, when to use it, when not to use it, which can sometimes be more important, and idioms and collocations, which is the uh, aspect um, that I'd like to spend the next... uh, 15 to 20 minutes on. Uh, So, when we know a word, we know all of these things. And native speakers with well-developed lexical knowledge know all of these components of of Lexis, not just the mapping of referent to form. Why should we care about these other aspects of word knowledge generally, and why should we care about these other aspects of word knowledge in EAL children? Well, uh, I first started thinking about this in relation to a project that I carried out with one of my then students, who is now a professor at San Francisco State University. Um, And there, we weren't looking at EAL children, but we were looking at adult second language learners. And we were interested in looking at the relationship between multi-word vocabulary or formulaic or idiomatic language and reading comprehension. And what we did was develop a measure of reading comprehension, a short little texts that were like the sort of profile paragraphs that you put up on Facebook. And we manipulated the presence of idiomatic phrases within these texts. We matched the text on the words, so exactly the same words appeared in both sets of texts, but the way in which they were combined differed and some were more idiomatic than others. And we also, uh, so we measured the reading comprehension of these two different types of texts and then also asked them to um, report their own um, comprehension, how they felt they they were able to comprehend the text. So here's an example of one of the sets of texts. There are exactly the same number, uh, the same words in each of these, but this one has expressions like over the hill, which is a more idiomatic um, phrase which would not be appearing in the other version. What we found here with these intermediate second language learners who were adults was significantly higher reading comprehension accuracy for the less idiomatic texts than the non-idiomatic texts. Uh, For the non-idiomatic texts, there was no difference between actual and reported comprehension. Uh, But this was not the case for the idiomatic texts, and indeed, participants overestimated their own understanding of these texts when there were idiomatic multi-word expressions within them. So here's an example of just one. So the way we measured comprehension of these texts was to just ask... We had a series of statements underneath each little text and asked them to tick off which were true. And so here this participant has ticked. She frequently plays football with her children, and the area in the passage that speaks to that is this bit, where it says, every so often I do have a ball playing football with my kids. Every so often means occasionally, it doesn't mean frequently. So this is actually incorrect. And the second one that this person uh, ticked was, she drinks when it is a special occasion, but the actual phrase was, even having one drink on occasion, which actually means, again, relatively infrequently I might have a drink. It says nothing about why I'm having this drink. I'm having it because it's Christmas time or New Year's or anything like this. So indeed, this is incorrect as well. But this participant has estimated their comprehension of this text at 100%. In fact, they're 100% inaccurate. But they thought they were 100% accurate on this this text. So this um, made me start to think, that maybe one of the reasons why children with EAL might be struggling with reading comprehension relative to native speakers isn't just because of their vocabulary overall, but might also be due to the inclusion of these sorts of multi-word phrases or idiomatic phrases in texts that if they don't even know they're there might cause a real problem because they might not even be able to try and... um, learn about it. So multi-word phrases like collocations or idioms are ubiquitous. They're everywhere in naturally occurring discourse. Nearly 500 collocations appear in the top 3,000 most commonly used word families. Some researchers argue that they are learned and stored holistically. There is some debate about this in the linguistics literature. Some linguists would argue that idioms are actually constructed online. But A lot of people believe that they're not, so... um, Despite the fact that collocations and multi-word vocabulary is such a prevalent aspect of vocabulary knowledge, it's remarkable how few studies have actually attempted to measure this knowledge in children Uh, and understand its development. Not just within the second language literature, but in first language literature as well. It's very difficult to come up with um, many uh, different studies that have looked at this aspect of vocabulary development. As a result, we know very little about it. We don't know much about how multi-word vocabulary develops in in children uh, or in second language children, and we certainly know very little about its relationship to literacy. So that brings me to telling you about the first project that's been recently com- completed in our research group, which is from uh, completed by Sarah Smith, who was one of our DPhil students in our group and in this department. And what Sarah wanted to do initially was to uh, measure collocational knowledge in children, and she wanted to do it sort of cross-sectionally across three different year groups in primary school and compare it to collocational knowledge and native-speaking children to see whether there were differences between the two and whether there might be different trajectories of development. And then what she wanted to do was relate this to literacy, reading comprehension in particular. But when she started doing her lit review, uh, she quickly discovered that there was practically no research that had looked at this, that from which she could then base a defil. Uh, and most worryingly for her was that there were no tests available that she could use to actually measure this knowledge in children. Um, So that meant then that her PhD became, the the job of the PhD became developing such a test and then administering it to children. So what she wanted to do then was develop this test that might be able to tap into this multi-word phrase knowledge in children and she recruited 108 children across three different year groups. in primary school. The EAL children had been educated in English since year one and had a range of different first languages. Now, this of course creates a problem. It's a limitation of the study, of course, because if there are specific first language transfer effects, they'll be lost because there's so many different L1s. But, of course, this is much more ecologically valid at the same time because, of course, teachers in classrooms will have children from a variety of different language backgrounds. Um, in addition to the test that she developed, which I'll tell you about in just a minute, she also measured their nonverbal IQ, their receptive vocabulary, their expressive or productive vocabulary. She used another measure called the A6 to 11, which is a test of figurative knowledge developed for children between the ages of 6 and 11, which she used to sort of uh, correlate with her measure. And she used the YARC, which is a test of reading comprehension, and also a language background questionnaire, which I should say is critical if you're ever doing any research on EAL children, because you can't just go into a school and say, who are your EAL kids, please, because... um, The way in which schools categorize EAL might have nothing to do with their actual linguistic competence or linguistic experience in their homes. So this was the task that Sarah developed. She developed a verb plus object multi-word phrase task. And why? Well, because verb plus object multi-word phrases are, are again, highly frequent in English. We can find examples of these items at both the high end and the low end of the frequency scale and can range from literal to non-literal all of the items had a mutual information index of greater than 2.5 which was assessed by using the collocate software program which indicates a significant collocational link. So these items are definitely going together uh, with a probability greater than chance She had transparent, semi-transparent and non-transparent items included in her task because previous research that has looked at these sorts of things has shown that the transparency of the item is an important variable in learners' um, performance on these sorts of things. And she also tried to make sure that the verbs and the objects included in the task were would be likely to be known by the children um, by checking on their frequency using the BNC, the British National Corpus, which isn't particularly relevant for children, but also with the Childist database, which is much more so. And the task was, here's an example of one of the items. The child um, reads out loud with the the researcher this initial phrase, Sam talks to his friends during lessons and doesn't, and then the child has to circle one option from the left column and one option from the right column to produce a multi-word phrase, a verb object phrase that's appropriate to complete the sentence. So um, there's obviously a lot of results here and I'm just going to really just focus on a tiny aspect. The first thing to point out is that there was a strong effect of transparency, which is consistent with other research in the literature. That is to say, the children were more accurate on this task on the transparent items than the, the semi transparent and then the non transparent. So, transparency had an impact on children's accuracy at generating these uh, different items. There was also an effect of year group. There were differences between years 3, 4, and 5, and there was a year group by language status interaction. So we looked at the two language groups separately. So for the L1 children, there was a significant increase between years 3 and 4 on transparent and semi-transparent, and then again an increase on years five and 4 and 5 on the non-transparent. Not quite linear, but sort of a a kind of linear progression across the transparent to less transparent items as the child is getting older and progressing through primary school. This was not the pattern that we observed in the EAL children. For the EAL children uh, there was really no difference between years three and four but then we saw a difference between four and five on the semi and non-transparent so it's not a step function but again it's less less linear than the first language children which we were wondering might suggest a different developmental trajectory. I wouldn't want to say that categorically on the basis of this data, but it might suggest that. We also noted that the multi-word task that Sarah developed accounted for 25% of the variance in the YARC reading comprehension measure controlling for language background, the nonverbal IQ measure, the uh, word knowledge, test of word knowledge, and expressive and receptive vocabulary. So, we think that Sarah's results might suggest a different development for multi word phrases in EAL than native speakers, and that uh, these words, this type of vocabulary, is important in reading comprehension. Um, the next project I want to tell you about. is is similar conceptually and focuses on idioms. And like sort of general multi-word phrases and collocations, idioms are prevalent in both spoken and written language. I had lunch the other day with someone, we were talking about these things, as you do, of course, and he, he was speaking English, which was his second language, and he said that he doesn't use any idioms. And then, to be really annoying, I started picking out all the idioms that he was using just to show how wrong he was. Wasn't even aware of it. It was most satisfying indeed, not for him. Uh, So they're highly prevalent. And we also know that children uh, with L1 children who have comprehension difficulties uh, have been shown to struggle with idioms. And EAL children often look like they have comprehension difficulties. So we thought idioms would be something interesting to look at in this population. And that brings me to Mairead McKendry's DPhil thesis, which was recently completed. And like Sarah, Ma- Mairead had a plan, <laughs> but what she actually did deviated somewhat from that plan. And what Maraid wanted to do was recruit uh, EAL and native-speaking children who were both good, who were some of whom were good comprehenders, as identified on the reading comprehension assessment, and some of whom were poor comprehenders. And then look at idiom across these four different groups of children when she did her screening phase of her study she found that there were no children who were scoring low enough on the reading comprehension measure to be considered poor comprehenders Uh, so she decided to look at average and above average readers which uh, again is interesting i think uh, and again speaks to the variability within the eal population so she had Average readers who were native and EAL, and she had above-average readers who were native and EAL. And she, uh, she, like Sarah, also had a mix of L1s, but they all came from Indo-Aryan languages, Um, so sort of all from the same language family. Uh, So, Mairead matched her participants on the YARC, which is the measure of reading, on the Comprehension Scale, Accuracy, and Rate Scales, on the TAURI, which is the measure of Phonemic Decoding Efficiency, which is basically just means their decoding ability, mapping the phonemes onto the graphemes, and on nonverbal IQ, which in this case was measured by the WASI matrices. So that enabled her to have matched groups uh, of average and above-average comprehenders in both EAL and L1. She also administered a non-verb, um, a backwards digit recall subtest, which is working memory, and the TAUC battery, which uh, Sarah also used the expressive. Maraid did the whole thing, all the subtests on the TAUC, and importantly, <laughs> administered a test of idiom comprehension, which was developed for first language children by Kane and Towes, And the three dimensions to this task are transparency, Again, just like with Sarah's task, transparency is a variable we know to be important here. Realness, that is whether the idioms were real or not, and context, that is whether the children saw the idioms in context or not. So to give you an example of this task, this is what's called the isolation condition, where the children are presented with the idiom in isolation. They are shown the idiom to have a bark that is worse than his bite, Then they are asked, how often have you heard this saying? And they have to choose from multiple choice. What does it mean when someone says to have a bark that is worse than his bite? And then they tell us what it means. The in-context condition uh, is one where the children first are presented with this uh, little paragraph that sets the scene, which always terminates on the presentation of the idiom. And then they are asked, what does it mean to say someone has, in this case, his bark is worse than his bite. Just to give you some examples of the different types of idioms, a transparent real item included in this study was "get away with murder, a transparent novel, caught between two fires, opaque real, carry a torch for someone, and opaque novel, the turtle is shrouded. I would love to start using that phrase (laughs) in my natural sort of English usage. And everyone would just say it's because I'm a crazy Canadian and we don't speak properly, allegedly. Right, so the results from Maraid's study that uh, was not so surprising is that the EAL above-average readers produce more idiomatic responses than the EAL average readers. That is to say, whether you're... Average or above average at reading has an impact on the number of idiomatic responses that you produce on this task. Ooh, my goodness me. It didn't look like that on my Mac. <laughs> if only everybody used Macs, we'd be fine. What I wanted to show you here was um, an ordinal interaction where we have more idiomatic responses for transparent than opaque idioms in the isolation condition, than the context condition. It's the same pattern in the context condition, but a much smaller difference in the context condition, which is why it's an ordinal interaction. Everyone cross your fingers. When you look at the results just from the native speakers, the pattern of results is almost identical except for the variable realness, whether or not the idiom was real or not. Oh, okay. So we found a realness by reading group interaction for the native speakers. So they produce more idiomatic responses to real than novel idioms for above average readers relative to average readers, which also interacted with transparency and context. So this is the transparent data. Again, more idiomatic responses on real than novel in both isolation and context for transparent idioms. And then these are the opaque. So again, virtually no difference in the isolation condition between real and novel on opaque idioms. A slightly larger difference in the context condition for opaque idioms. So just to summarize, whether the idiom was a real idiom or not had a big impact on the native speakers that was not observable on the EAL. Realness as a variable did not come out of the statistical analyses as being significantly interesting, which we assume means that for the EAL learners indicates that they were all equally unreal or real, but many of them were not real. So we also found group differences between the EAL and the native speaking children on the productive, the expressive vocabulary measure that we administered, the TAUC, As I mentioned before, productive vocabulary is an important variable for EAL children. So what we did was rerun all the data using ANCOVA, which factors out the variability due to expressive vocabulary. And once we did that, with the EAL children, absolutely everything changed. That is to say, whereas once there were significant effects, there were no longer. variability due to uh, productive vocabulary was factored out. Not even a reading group, that is to say, no difference between the average and the above average readers anymore uh, when we factored out variability due to productive vocabulary, which we assume, though again, it's just an assumption... uh, might mean that they're drawing upon... uh, that native speakers are doing... uh, drawing upon other knowledge, because very little changed for the native speakers when we factored out variability from productive vocabulary. That is to say, the same effects that we had with the ANOVAs we found with the ANCOVAs, even when we factored that out. So, um, that's just a repeat. So, what we think this means, then, is that native-speaking children draw upon skills in addition to productive vocabulary when completing the idiom task. When we also looked at the relationship between the idiom comprehension measure and the YARC, which was the reading comprehension measure, we found more significant relationships between idioms and reading comprehension for the EAL children than for the native speaking children. So idiom performance predicts a performance on the reading comprehension over and above vocabulary for the EAL children, which is not the case for the native-speaking children. So, what does this mean? Well, both of these studies are preliminary. That is to say, you know, they're not going to um, cause the world to stop rotating or shift it or anything. Uh, they're, they're relatively... Uh, Small, they're certainly small-scale, but they do, I believe, indicate nuanced differences in multi-word vocabulary knowledge between native-speaking children and EAL children, even when they're matched on things like nonverbal IQ and reading comprehension, and so on. They also show that there are significant relationships between the multi-word vocabulary measures and reading comprehension. So I think, minimally, from these two studies, and the work that I talked about earlier looking at adult L2 learners is a sort of a green light to go ahead and start looking more closely at this aspect of vocabulary uh, and not just looking at overall breadth as we have done consistently in the past. Just in the remaining two minutes, I'll tell you a little bit more about some of the work that we're doing in the real group Um, I'm currently working with colleagues in experimental psychology and computing science uh, looking at corpus analysis of the Oxford Children's Corpus, which is a wonderful resource of language, uh, text directed, written for children, uh, and also text written by children as part of the BBC2 written composition um, competition that they've been having for the past few years. This corpus consists of over 100 million words of writing for and by 5 to 14-year-old children. And what we are doing is looking at uh, two main aspects. One is contextual diversity, where where higher frequency words tend to be found in more diverse contexts. And we want to try and examine whether contextual diversity is a better predictor of ease of reading than frequency. Um, uh, And perhaps more relevant for this afternoon is the role of multi-word phrases. We're going to be looking at multi-word vocabulary collocations and idioms within both the the corpus of text for children and the text written by children to look at the kinds of collocations that are being produced and are presented to these children. This is sort of a one-year kind of scoping study because no one has done any research with this corpus before. So we're sort of using this opportunity this year to examine what sorts of things can we do, uh, which minimally will help us make principal decisions about the sorts of stimuli that we include in studies that we design. But hopefully it will do more for us than that. With Ernesto and Anne Childs, we're also... Oh, that's the next one. I'll tell you... (laughs) Okay, the first one here is just that we're doing a review, Uh, Steve Strand and I have some money from the EEF to do a review of the National Pupil Database, uh, and a systematic review of interventions looking at EAL children, as as I said and have been trying to repeat this afternoon, there's a lot of variability within the population. Uh, Even though I was showing you figures which illustrated that the EAL children are consistently scoring lower than native-speaking children. They're not the lowest performing group of children in the UK. That would be low SES British white boys. Uh, And So what we're trying to do with this work is look more closely at the different types of EAL children that we have in the UK to identify the most vulnerable groups of EAL kids and to see what interventions that have been implemented seem to be most successful. With Anne and Ernesto we're at the beginning stages of a project looking at vocabulary and in teacher explanations of science concepts with EAL kids and uh, students strategies. Uh, as, of course, we would if Ernesto is involved in the project, uh, at how they deal with those explanations. Uh, We're particularly interested in, in the sort of polysemy of expressions like solution, which might have very different meanings in different kinds of academic subjects. Also very interested in EAL and MFL. There are many anecdotes around about how Uh, Teachers would exclude EAL children from foreign language lessons when they were offered because they figured it was too difficult for them given they were learners of English. It would just be far too much to ask them to participate in the French class or the German class, which is worrying. But uh, now that modern foreign language instruction is going to be a compulsory part of the primary curriculum in the UK as of September of this year, we are at the beginning stages again of developing some research looking at the sorts of outcomes and processes of EAL children in learning MFL. So in summary, we think it's worth spending more time thinking about how best to support EAL children. Uh, Because even children who excel in reading, that is, they were above-average readers in Maraid's study, are scoring significantly lower than comprehension-matched native-speaking peers on measures of expressive vocabulary breadth and depth. So there's something there. Uh, I also would like to argue that we need to do more work on different aspects of vocabulary knowledge, as I expressed earlier, particularly productive, and I will leave it there because I've gone well beyond the 45 minute threshold thank you